Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well tonight, Pete. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we're going to talk about difficult elbow cases. The elbow can be a really challenging joint. The anatomy is complex. Neurovascular structures are never far away. The propensity for stiffness and infection are considerable. So we invited two experts to go through a few difficult cases they faced to talk about their strategies. First, we have Dr. Mark Cohen from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Dr. Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. And Rachel, I didn't know you were there. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks, Dr. Cohen. It's great to be on the line with you. Since when do you call me Dr. Cohen, Rachel? But let's go on. <laughs> I think that might be lifelong. <laughs> Next, we have Dr. Mark Barretts from the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Barretts, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much for both for joining us. Our hope today is to talk about some difficult cases. Dr. Cohen, tell us about a difficult case you did recently. What was hard and what tricks did you use to make it easier? Well, it's a case I did last week. And even as I sit here now, I'm not sure I did the right thing. Um, and I'd be interested in others' opinions. But uh, I saw a 57-year-old, um, quite overweight woman um, with a very high BMI over 35 or 37, as I remember, who fell and had a terrible triad-type fracture dislocation of her elbow. The radial head was pretty comminuted, and she had at least a coronoid chip, as you could see on the lateral projection from the emergency room. And one of our residents reduced it and put her in a splint. And for some reason, she did not make it into my office until I believe nine or 10 days after the injury. And when I saw her, she felt like she was doing fine and her x-ray showed that her elbow was out again. If anything, the tip of the coronoid was just perched on the poster aspect of the trochlea. I did get a CT and with the elbow out and the coronoid did not look significant. It was bigger than a little chip type one, but it came across, but the majority of the medial uh, sublime tubercle, the majority of the medial coronoid was intact. The radial head was clearly unreconstructable. And again, I'm faced with a dilemma that I've had before, which is a joint that has um, essentially declared itself unstable, more than just a standard terrible triad, and that in a splint at 90 degrees, she came back out again. So that was my dilemma, and I can just tell you my thoughts and continue, or do you want to stop there, Peter? I actually have a bunch of questions for you about, about this kind of thing. Uh, first, my question here is, so you describe the coronoid as just a, a chip. It, it, and this is hard, but when does it go for you from being a chip to being something significant? Is there a number you use? Is it I know it when I see it? Well, what I said was on the lateral projection, you could see the coronoid was fractured on her original dislocation um, film. What I can tell you is that um, I've looked at all of the coronoid classifications from the Mori 123 to Sean's classification to Scott Steinman's updated classification and 
I still can't really figure out um, what to place many of these coronoid fractures, what category to put them in, and how those help you. What I can tell you is most terrible triads involve the lateral coronoid, and the medial tip is usually not affected. It's when the fractures come down low on the medial side that I really get anxious. I'll also tell you that um, I like the 3D reconstructions. Um, what they do is they show you three-dimensionally what part of the coronoid is fractured and how big the piece is. And what I do now routinely is I have them subtract the humerus out so I can flip the joint and look on the inside, look at the coronoid from the inside, and that's really been helpful. And I don't want to make this into a lecture, but what, the reason I think it's helpful is sometimes on the um, sagittal cuts and on the 3D cuts, the anterior coronoid piece looks very large. It comes out very far distally. And your mind looks at that and says, wow, that's a large piece because we consider you can't see the fracture on the joint side. But you think, God, that goes down six, seven millimeters. That must be a large coronoid. And then you look on the inside of the joint and it enters the joint one or two millimeters from the tip. And it's essentially, it's broken off in a coronal plane, you see a large extra articular cortical fragment on the 3D. So I like the 3D, but I, the answer to your question simply is, it's when the fracture involves the medial side and comes down low on the medial side, down toward the sublime tubercle, the insertion of the medial collateral that I start to get anxious. And then you'd, you'd mentioned in here that the radial head you felt was not reconstructable. Um, and that you were, I'm assuming that's leading us towards a replacement here. Do you do you have radial head replacements to use in this situation versus like, a, for instance, a arthroplasty situation? Or like, does that change the way that you approach that joint if there's an instability component to the complaint? You said, do I change the type of prosthesis that I use? Correct. Yeah. No, I don't think it. I don't think the type of prosthesis matters. We all have opinions regarding the better designs and the advantages of each design versus the other, but I don't think that the type of injury or the reason I'm replacing the radial head, other than in some circumstances such as longitudinal instability and some other things we can talk about, changes the type of prosthesis I use. And then the last thing you mentioned was her, her BMI. Certainly that makes splinting challenging. For you, does that also change I mean, certainly that's a heavier arm. There's more forces placed on your reconstruction. Does it does it change your rehab? Does it change your approach at all to have a heavier arm here? It, it clearly complicates the problem. And it complicates the problem because of the sheer um, lever arm. When these individuals raise their uh, shoulder, elbow away from their body, abduct their shoulder, the varus force is huge. And sometimes they're so big that their resting position is in varus. Their arm doesn't come down to be perpendicular to the ground. So I've had the majority of my problems with instability after fractures with larger arms. And I, it is, maybe the larger arm leads to more stripping of the soft tissue or tearing of the soft tissue envelope, but it's clear size matters when you're dealing with elbow fractures, at least fracture dislocation. I thought the same thing, that it's almost like a varus deformis to start. Dr. Barrett, when you think about this case, what are some thoughts that come to mind? What are the things you're worried about with this case? What might be your approach? 
So I, I think you've alluded to some of the challenges that we face with someone with a larger arm. And what I'll say is I'll, I'll echo uh, Mark's sentiments about some of the uh, difficulties. I actually think that there are some other elements that come into play. So when I see a, a perimenopausal woman who is heavy set, I actually believe that her collagen is a little bit different. I also believe that her resting muscle tone is a little bit different in addition just to the difference in mass. And for me, these have been some of the most difficult elbows to manage in terms of instability. Another thing that I've seen is that when you examine this arm, uh, once the patient is anesthetized and before you've touched their skin with a scalpel, often you can move that forearm in any direction with respect to their humerus. So I think it is a different injury. And from the outset, it prepares me mentally to have things in the operating room that I, I might not normally have. And I, I start thinking about there's a decent chance that not only am I going to go lateral, but I may go medial. And there's a decent chance that I'm going to use some sort of device to help augment stability in addition to my uh, perhaps radial head replacement and ligament repair. The other thing that I did want to mention is that uh, Mark and I both have a, a conflict with regard to a radial head implant. But any time that I talk about radial head implants, one of the things that I like to say is that metal matters, but what is way more important in elbow fracture dislocations is restoring soft tissue integrity. And so I agree with him 100% that I don't think it, it matters whether you use a monopole or bipolar. Uh, what you've got to focus on is not the implant that you bring into the OR so much as how are you going to restore integrity? So, so tell us how you approach. So, what did you do in the operating room for this patient? Well, the first thing I'll tell you is the hardest thing for me is the night before, because I have learned the hard way that you can't always tell how well the elbow has been secured, how stable it is when you're in the operating room, and um, I look back at many of my failures and it were they were cases just like this because when you go back in and you uh, and this elbow was very unstable laterally i mean like mark said uh, the elbow was slipping medially laterally it was even hard to hold it in the trochlea um, but i did replace the radial head and i did repair the ligament and on the table it felt pretty good but I had made um, my mind up beforehand. And then again, this is not because I'm smart, it's because I've been burned so many times that in my experience when the, and I didn't get to her until about four, 13 or 14 days out, but in my experience when the elbow has been dislocated for 10 or 14 days, it has a propensity to come out again. And I haven't figured out what it means, whether it's the biceps and the triceps and the brachialis all become Height in a contracted, dislocated state. I really don't know what it is, but I've had too many times where I leave the operating room feeling secure, and the first post-operative X-ray seven days later shows the joint subluxating out. And I, I've learned my lesson. And like Mark said, I had new additional uh, tools in the operating room, and in this case, I added a static external fixator 
Um, I've always used the medium AO external fixator, two pins in the humerus, two pins in the ulna. You put the arm across the body, make sure the joint's reduced and, and tighten the, a, a T-bar across. And um, what I'm sitting here a week later is again wondering, did I do too much? But I will tell you, boy, have I been burned and I've been burned a lot. And um, I need insurance and I need to sleep at night now that I'm old, as Mark pointed out. So I, in this case, this is the one case when the elbow has been out for a period of time. And I don't know what the answer, whether it's 10 days or 12 days or 14 days, but those are the ones I can't keep in the socket. And when these people are paralyzed and you've done a repair, it feels pretty good. But uh, that post-op x-ray, when it, there's nothing worse than on a Friday afternoon getting an x-ray and the elbow you put back in last week is now halfway slipped out again. Because, I mean, it just, it's a miserable weekend and it makes for another miserable visit to the operating room. And so I put a static external fixator on her and I've um, seen her back once and I, I, the elbow's in and it's fine. And I, my contention is if that ulnohumeral humeral joint stays reduced for three or four weeks, she's not coming out again. So um, that's how I handled the case. Uh, I'm certainly up for criticism. I don't mind criticism. Um, I have, my disclosure is I have not and I will not um, use a, an internal dynamic fixator. I have no problem with people using it. I just, to me, the problem here is instability and I need the elbow to be stable. And having immobilized a lot of unstable elbows for prolonged times in frames and otherwise, I don't believe that static um, concentrically reduced elbows are more necessarily prone to stiffness than if you move them in a week and didn't have a frame on. So I'm a, I really believe in my heart, I'm not increasing her chance of stiffness or her chance of um, needing an elbow release. I don't think three or four weeks immobilizing this elbow is gonna in any way, like maybe Mark's right, maybe they have poor collagen because uh, rarely have I had to go back and do a release in this setting. Dr. Cohen, with these kinds of patients, especially for our younger listeners, you know, where they don't have the experience that either of, of you guys have with dealing with these injuries and understanding the, the natural history of them, let alone what happens after surgery, how do you counsel her before surgery about her expectations for this elbow moving forward, her expectations for needing to go back to the OR, whether it's hopefully not, but for persistent instability or for stiffness? Because I think that the younger listeners are going to get very excited about the technical pearls. And we love the pearls that both of you are giving us and will continue to give us. But practically counseling these patients, particularly for younger surgeons, I think is really important. So how do you, how do you handle that type of conversation with this patient? Well, first, what I'll tell you is the woman sitting across from me who's had an elbow dislocation, who finds out her elbow is still dislocated, anything you tell her, she's not really listening to. So I don't think I, what I tell patients is that this is a bad injury and that we hope we'll be able to recover their mobility. I want them to know that if they do not recover their mobility, we can always go back. People just want to know, am I ever going to be normal again? So I try to reassure them, even if there's more than one surgery, they should get a very functional arc of motion back. And then in terms of the frame, what I told her was I was going to think about it for a day or two, but there was a very good chance she was going to wake up with a big vulgar tinker toy set hanging off her arm. 
and I would get it off of her arm in three to four weeks, and I can do that right in the office. We t- I take them off right in the office. And um, that's what I told her. I guarantee you if you ask her what I told her, she won't remember. And um, I think, and again, this is not about philosophy, but I think being honest and, and being open with patients is more important than giving them every last detail about what they're going to expect. So you say you, you take the frame off at three to four weeks, and then do you start motion then? Yes, of course. Yes. Are there any restrictions on motion? You say move as much as you feel comfortable? Well, I mean, I have we have two protocols for elbow rehabilitation after a dislocation. One is for a standard, we call it the standard LCL protocol, which is they're in a long arm posterior splinted 90 degrees in neutral full time, and they come out of the brace in therapy and as many times as every hour to work on flexion and extension. But when they do that, their elbow is at their side and they're flexing and extending often using their contralateral hand under their wrist just to flex and extend and we let them rotate only at maximum flexion, which locks in the ulnohumeral joint. In this case, I might start her a week or two doing the same thing but supine because the elbow won't dislocate in the supine position. And when I'm really worried, especially with a very big arm, sometimes for the first week or two, I'll do that supine. And Dr. Barrett's, would, would you, is this a case where you have, you have used an external fixator or an internal fixator? Or what else would you have added in this case, given the concern? Um, I, again, think that the most important thing is that you leave the operating room with a concentric reduction of the ulnohumeral joint. And also, uh, by the way, uh, decent alignment, not only on a lateral projection, but on an AP projection. Um, I have had instances where I have over-tightened the lateral side because I didn't have the uh, doorstop effect of the medial collateral ligament. And so I said, wow, this is a, it's a big arm. It's very unstable. I want to make sure that I get a really good, secure lateral reconstruction. Uh, tightened it, uh, thought that everything looked good, probably didn't get a good uh, AP view of the elbow. Uh, had the person come back in at uh, between five and seven days. Uh, even with, with her laying on her back and her elbow above her head, could not get the elbow to 90 degrees. Got a good answer. Mark, that is such a good point. Gosh, yeah. I, I, that is such a good point. And I just can't, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just, just excited to hear it because I used to, when I did the lateral repair, pronate. And if the medial side's torn, all that does is gaps open the onohumeral joint medially. So now when I tighten the lateral, I do it across the body in neutral, and I have somebody pushing down on the ulnohumeral joint just to try not to pop open that medial side. Yeah, so that that's one of those things that I think you have to pay a lot of attention to. And if it looks like the forearm is translated with respect to the humerus, you actually have to take down your lateral repair uh, go to the medial side, repair your medial side, and then go back and do your lateral side, which is what I did. I don't, I, I don't feel as strongly about not using an internal device versus an external device. But again, I, I think the principle is leave the OR with something you feel that you can believe in 
that will help maintain that reduction. Uh, and so whether it's an internal device, an external device, or even a transfixing pin, I don't use uh, pins that uh, transfix the ulna into the humerus. Uh, at least I haven't done it in the US. I've done it in uh, situations where I'm overseas. Uh, you just want to have that reduction because as Mark said, uh, we are good at managing contractures. We're very good at restoring motion to a stiff but stable elbow. What we're not so good at is recurrent instability. One point about the transfixion pen, Mark, I know some people like it. Um, I've had two catastrophic complications early in my career with that. Um, one, the pin broke through the humerus, um, and the other one I got, even though I tried to cut it flush with the ulna, um, the point of the pin came through the skin, and I got osteomyelitis of the joint. So that's when I started using the medium external fixator, because everybody who's done an orthopedic residency, at least maybe I'm, I'm dating myself, because we used to use the fixators for tibia, open tibia fractures, but most orthopedically trained um, doctors can put on an external fixator. And um, the, the complexity of something, and it's really just that, the complexity of putting something on the inside doesn't appeal to me when all I want to do is make sure that joint is stable and concentric. And I also was burned, I don't know, Mark, if you remember the days we used to put the dynamic external fixators on the fixators that were put on like an external fixator, but they had a hinge in them. And having tried those early as well and seen the joints slip out, I just decided one day I'm just going to put a static frame on this and buy stiffness if I need it, but that joint is going to heal concentrically. And I've never gone back. Well, Dr. Cohen, we wish you luck with follow-up on that patient. Hopefully that joint stays nice and stable. Dr. Baird, let's, let's move on to a case of yours and tell us a little bit about a difficult case that you've done recently. Where, if any, did any struggles originate and how did you overcome any challenges? So, uh, Rachel, thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to call this case Phone a Friend uh, because after a lot of years in practice, I'm entering year 31 I am still reaching out regularly to colleagues to help me out of difficult situations. And so this is a case that actually went on over, it's not so recent, it went on over several years, but it was a, a, a very challenging case initially in that it was a, a floating elbow and the humerus was uh, fractured in the metadiaphysis, pretty easy fracture pattern. Uh, short oblique fracture through the humerus. And then there was a comminuted fracture of both the radius and ulna. Uh, the radius was just distal to the uh, uh, bicipital tuberosity, the ulna a little bit distal to that. The ulna happened to be open. It was initially treated at a university center out of state. It was a contiguous state. And so I had an office that was in between where this person lived and where he has his original treatment, and he was uh, subsequently referred to me for stiffness. When I looked at the fixation that had been obtained by the original group, they'd done a beautiful job realigning things. I, I first looked at it and I said, you know, I can't tell for sure whether the ulna and radius are completely healed, but they look like that there's at least partial consolidation 
and his, his main issue is elbow stiffness. And so I, I left hardware in, uh, did a release, and was able to restore a functional arc to his elbow. Over time, it became clear that his ulna was not going to heal. And, and I've prided myself on the years on being a good non-union surgeon. And so in the first procedure, I took out hardware, I did cultures, I used autogenous graft, iliac crest bone graft, and replated the only, the initial plate had been uh, placed on the sort of posteromedial surface, surface, a little bit more medial than posterior. And so I put on a longer uh, plate that uh, spanned from the tip of the olecranon down into the forearm and was very, very happy with both the appearance of the the takedown, the graft that I put in, and the fixation. Cultures came back as negative, and I thought I was home free. It ended up not healing, and so I took him back, again did cultures. Uh, cultures subsequently were normal. I again uh, uh, did uh, grafting, again with a posterior plate, but this time I added a BMP, and I thought that with this, I was going to not have any difficulty. In fact, I, I can't remember having that construct not work out for me. But again, this did not heal. And so at this point, it was clear that uh, repeating the same algorithm was not going to work, and so I thought I would get fancy. And I took a uh, vascularized uh, medial femoral condyle. Uh, I took a one and a half by one and a half by two centimeter block, uh, plugged it in, and after a bunch of high fives in the operating room, I was convinced that I had finally solved this problem. Unfortunately, yet again, he did not go on to heal. And at this point, all of my routine tricks for managing this had left me with a bone that had not healed and which I had uh, multiply operated on. So at this point, I reached out, and I reached out to Julie Adams, Scott Steinman, Mark Cohen, and Graham King. And one of the first things that Julie Adams said to me, she said, what's this guy like metabolically? I said, well, I got him to quit smoking. He seems to be pretty healthy. Um, I think he's okay. And she said, you know what, do vitamin D levels. And I. I routinely have people take vitamin D, but I do not routinely check their levels. Check the levels, and sure enough, Julie Adams was right that I had a person who was vitamin D deficient. So we uh, corrected that, uh, and then I got uh, a phone call from uh, Graham King, and Graham said, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this case, and I think you need to, to do dual plating. And so I said, that sounds like a good idea. And then I got an email from Mark Cohen. And Mark, I don't know if you remember this case, but you said, treat this like a spinal fusion. And maybe you can share with us your experience with what you taught me to do and was uh, extremely helpful. You have to give me a little more hint. Oh, come on now, Mark. This, this is your pearl. So anyway, are you the, talking about the bone grafting? Well, not only the bone grafting, but when you said treat this like a spinal fusion, a light went on in my head because what you had said is 
don't think only about that non-union site. In this case, you've got bone that is not healthy. And what you can do is you can increase the potential area for getting this bone to heal by scalloping the ulna on both sides over an area of about uh, six centimeters on either side and then pack graft in on either side. And it was something that I'd never heard of, I'd never thought of, and it turned out to be exactly what this person needed because I did do dual plating uh, and I did scallop and I bone grafted over a length of about centimeters, almost circumferentially. I didn't strip bone anteriorly that uh, had soft tissue that I'd really not touched, uh, but over an area of about 270 degrees, there was bone that I scalloped or lightly burred and then added bone graft. And that was a winner yeah. and way easier than vascularized bone grafting. And, and let me just say that um, I have, I don't, did not think of this. It, it was taught to me by my partner, Walt Verkus at the time. But um, when I need more than just a little bit of distal radius bone graft, my go-to now is a 40-millimeter acetabular reamer. And you slide along, you make an incision inferior to the anterior crest, and you strip the lateral wall just enough to get a 40-millimeter reamer right up underneath that um, ridge of the iliac crest and you ream to the inner table. You can actually do two passes. And I'm not kidding. You get like a, you know, one of those specimen cups that you get? You can get two full specimen cups of this um, comp this, this beautiful um, cortical cancellous bone. And I put it in a 60C syringe and squeeze it down, and it's like clay. You can pack it anywhere. And um, you'd say, well, it's cortical cancellus. And we had Joe Lane come as a visiting professor. And he said, my gosh, all the bone um, growth, all the, all the proteins, all those BMP things are in the cortical bone. So his point was that when you ream cortical cancellus bone, you're getting significantly better than just going in between the iliac crest and taking, leaving the tables and taking the, in, the inner crest cancellus bone. And I don't know. I can tell you that I've seen things that I couldn't get to heal heal remarkably quickly with that sort of clay iliac crest reamed bone. And I know people now get bone from the tibia, and I know there's industry instruments to get bone from inside the tibia, but um, that, that iliac crest reamer has really changed my approach when I need more than just a little sliver of uh, bone for something. Have you ever used that, Mark? Uh, after you taught me about it, I did. Um, let me ask. Let me ask you this: You mentioned the vitamin D. Are there, when you get to this point in non-union, are you ever sending people to endocrinology? Are there other labs you think about? I mean, do you ever think about, you know, like calcium and alkafos and prolactin and all these other endocrine labs, or do you just say I? Do you ever refer people for that, or is that something that doesn't really come up? I do when, when I'm up against the wall. Uh, so typically my algorithm for both uh, uh, shoulder arthroplasty, elbow arthroplasty, and difficult non-unions is to just try and prime the pump as much as I can. So I will um, 
make sure that the patient is taking at least 2,000 units of vitamin D. Uh, most people are not calcium deficient, but I'll have them uh, take a calcium supplement. And then I also try to make sure that their nutritional status is decent. I'll have them take uh, one of the standard over-the-counter protein drinks. Uh, tell them to go to their favorite uh, a warehouse and pick up a case of one of these uh, products and I ask them to drink a can a day for a week before their surgery and then for three weeks afterwards. I want to try to uh, mitigate the catabolic state that uh, occurs when they go through a big operation like this. But I think when, when that has failed and you have reason to suspect that um, you may not be correcting a deficiency, then I will use an endocrine consult. Or, or just at, at the very outset, you have someone who seems like they uh, don't have a, nutrition, a decent nutritional status. I met a woman who said, uh, when I asked her, it was very thin, her BMI was 16, I asked her about her diet, and she, she said, yeah, my diet is Diet Pepsi. And I said, well, well, what do you mean? And she said, I mean, that's what I have for lunch and dinner. Um, and so in a person like that, you do have to turn up the gas. I'll tell you, Mark, I think that we don't do enough or don't look carefully enough at nutrition. I, I did a um, research study in my residency on spine infections, and we looked at 50 different variables, and the only variable was low albumin, low total protein, poor nutrition. That was the one corresponding um, lab value or, or value of all the things that we looked at that cor correlated with um, infection after internal fixation of the spine. And I don't, I think you're 100% right. I don't think we look at that enough. And um, I, I, I really commend you in thinking of that because the, I always, I've had a double non, we have a difficult problems conference on Tuesday nights and Boy, you get schooled by your partners. It's embarrassing. But I had a two-time non-union, and sure enough, John Fernandez said to me, why don't you check the calcium and vitamin D? And this lady had a vitamin D level that was not it was unrecordable. It was a straight line. And the, I did send her to, hear, her to an endocrinologist who said she had the lowest level he had ever seen. So it's, these things we don't think about, but, boy, we should more often. Yeah, I mean, you and I talked about this before, but I, I even had a 13-year-old with a both bone form fracture who was a, a standout basketball player from Western Pennsylvania. His dad was a local high school coach. I went in to plate this kid's forearm and really couldn't get purchased with standard screws. I ended up putting in cancellous screws. And when I came out, I said, you know, something isn't right. I want to get uh, this child worked up. Uh, the kid um, ended up being vitamin D deficient primarily because he was never outside. He was always working out in the gym. They couldn't find any other reason for it. And the kid now plays in the NBA. So uh, I, I it's think it's more common than you think. My pediatric orthopedic partner literally spooked me about 10 years ago. She tells me she every kid with a fracture, she checks. She said it's unbelievably common, especially during the winter in, in cold states. And she got me to start my kids taking vitamin D and calcium uh, when they were like seven years old. So it, it happens a lot in kids, more than you'd think. They have fruit drinks. They have sodas. They just – nutrition is a big deal. We don't think about it. 
Some incredible points for our young listeners. I think, you know, first and foremost, being willing and interested in listening to the advice of others at any point in your career. I think for our young shoulder and elbow listeners, I, I would take that advice to heart and not ever be afraid to ask for help for difficult cases or even running by a good thought process through your mentors and colleagues. And it's just very refreshing, at least from my perspective. I'm sure Pete shares this to, to hear you say that that you do that. And um, I, again, I think our young listeners should take that to heart. And certainly looking at nutrition and general health, whether it's a BMI of 40 or a BMI of 14, there can be nutritional abnormalities all over the board. And, and looking at that for all of the surgeries we do, let alone it being fracture, non-union, malunion, but even soft tissue repairs. So great points there. Dr. Cohen, let's go back to you. Can you tell us about a difficult case that you have coming up? And where do you anticipate trouble and what are you planning to do? I will, Rachel, if I'd just like to add one additional thing, because I think we don't really talk about this enough. But many times you see patients in the office and you're not sure. And uh, I will tell you that I look people right in the eye and I say, you know what? I have some thoughts, but I'm not proud. And I'm going to send your case around to some of my colleagues around the country. And patients don't look at you and say, my God, I went to a doctor that doesn't know what he's doing. I'm straight up, full disclosure, I'm getting additional opinions. I'm not sure. And sometimes I have them come back and I read them Mark Barrett's email or, or Scott Cozen or Graham King or Steinman. And I say, this is what he said. This is what she said. This is what, and I go through them all with the patients and, um, I'm not shy and I'm not embarrassed, and I think it's important that you don't always have the right answers or all the answers. And I told a woman today, boy, that is such a complicated – got to give me some time to think about this. I really don't know what I recommend for you. I just – let me think about it. And it it really – once you realize that it's fine to say that to a patient, it takes a lot of anxiety out of your clinic – and out of your day-to-day, and I I just bring it up because it's something that I learned over time. I don't know how or why, but I'm shocked how well they they tell you again and again, thank you for thinking enough about my case to share it with your colleagues. So don't be shy, in my opinion, to let them know that you're doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something you taught both Rachel and I that we're both very appreciative because I do the same thing. I mean, I've emailed you about cases to say I can you help me to figure out what to do with this? And certainly I do the same with shoulder cases with um, mentors that are kind enough to respond to my email so I, or, or my phone call. So I, it's, it's so valuable to have that. And I certainly, certainly we won't stop emailing you. So thanks for responding. Yeah. So Rachel, I'll make it short. Um, I had a 60 something year old guy rupture his biceps and I did a biceps repair and he did very well. I think he was 62 and he came in at 67 um, and ruptured his other biceps his non-dominant biceps and as Mark Barrett's taught me I sat down with him and said this is an expendable tendon you can live your life without it if I popped my right biceps I would have it fixed if I popped my left I'd probably ignore it I could do everything in life and I gave him the whole speech and he said I did so well on the right please do my left And um, I know Mark's probably grimacing because um, he's taught me how well people do if they don't have a distal biceps repaired. And I have other, I have a Cynthia's rep who laughs at me all the time because he ruptured his and I told him you need to have it fixed. And he shows me how well his arm works 20 years later every time I see him and makes fun of me. But 
I took this guy back for a biceps repair on his left side, and everything went fine. And he comes to his first post-op visit, and he said, something's wrong. And I said, what's wrong? He said, well, you know, I, I, I felt something in the middle of the night, something's wrong. And I felt I could feel his biceps in the antecubital fossa. He was in a long arm splint. And I said, you know, nothing's wrong. I mean, the guy was always anxious. And Jesse Jupiter taught me a long time ago, when a patient tells you something's wrong, my gosh, don't blow them off because they're usually right. You just listen to your patients. But I blew them off and we rehabbed them. And at about six months, he said, something's wrong. And I could feel his biceps. He fired his biceps. I could feel his biceps. But I did break down at six months and get an MRI, and sure enough, the biceps was still down there, but it had completely pulled out of my cavity. I use a two-incision technique, and it was being held by about a pseudo-tendon about two centimeters in length. And every visit, he said to me, you know, something happened that first night, and, and I laughed at him, and sure enough, um, I have tie on my face. So um, I broke down after trying to convince him that it's fine. He had no deformity, nothing, but he said it didn't feel right to him. And I went back and did a graft, uh, a biceps revision with a graft, and I usually use the semitendinosus, weaving it in proximally. I used to um, try to get the tension just through the anterior incision, but now I find it easier just to pull it through laterally and then mark it where it crosses the radius at about 90 degrees. And it's almost impossible we can talk about making the revisions with a graft too tight because you end up just needing a couple centimeters. But I redid him, and I was smart enough. I put him in a cast and um, for three or four weeks, and then I started him very slowly. And sure enough, he did fine, and I thought I was fine. And then he came in literally about a month ago, a year out, and he said, something's wrong. This one's not like the other one. Something's wrong. And I said, well, you had a graft, this and this and this. And I argued with him, but I already got burned once. So I said, okay, if it'll make you happy, I'll get an MRI. And we get an MRI. And sure enough, the graft from the revision is gone. I mean, there's nothing in his, in the, in the, in the radius. And, um, I started looking at him more carefully, and sure enough, he's got a little bit of a deformity one side versus the other. And the reason I'm bringing him up is I've met with him. I mean, he's 68 now. I've met with him five times. And somehow, some way, I'm embarrassed to say I got talked into doing him again. And I have no idea what I'm going to do. I mean, the definition of stupid is to do the same thing like Mark said and expect a different outcome. So I have no idea what I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it differently, and it's a it's a case I'm embarrassed to present. I'm embarrassed to have him on my schedule, but I, I couldn't get him to go to see Dr. Barrett's, and I'm stuck with him, and um, that's my case. And you're sticking to it. And I'm sticking to it. And I'm going to get burned again. I know it. I see it. The train is coming. I'm standing on the tracks, and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And, Mark, this is his left arm. Is that correct? That is correct. And he's right-hand dominant? Uh, yeah, that is correct. Yeah. And, and he brings me pictures of all his exercise equipment, and he shows me his exercise routine. I mean, the guy is a is a exercise fanatic and he tells you know I and I have to listen you know when you have a complication 
One of the worst things is you can't cut those patients off. You see them on the schedule, you know you're in that room for 10 or 15 minutes, you can't get out of the chair because he's going to tell you everything he wants to tell you. He brings me a list, he shows me pictures, and I nod, and I under my little mask, I bite my lip to the point it's bleeding, and I sit and listen until he's done talking. And it's because uh, he's already been, I've, I've already had a complication, and then I had another complication, and now he can talk forever, I'm not getting up. But the problem is, I don't know how to get out of this one. Yeah, I think it's I think it's difficult. I mean, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a hater of uh, biceps tendon repairs. I I actually end up operating on most patients that come in with a biceps rupture, and but but I do try very carefully to explain the potential issues. Early in my practice, I think I had a bias against re- repairs because I actually saw more complications from distal biceps repairs than I saw acute ruptures. And so I have this pretty extensive collection of ruptured biceps tendons, radial nerve palsies, median nerve palsies, fractured proximal radii. And um, so, so what it became clear to me that this, this wasn't a real quick discussion that I could have with this patient about their repair because all of these things were were potential issues. As I my skill level improved over time and started seeing more primary ruptures, conversation probably got a little bit shorter. But I think you have to be prepared to say, uh, you know, this is your non-dominant arm. Uh, you have had now a couple operations and we've dodged a bullet, but the dissection becomes significantly more difficult every time we enter your elbow and how are you going to feel if we get the biceps to heal but your fingers don't work that well or there is uh, uh, burning dysesthesias down your forearm that make it hard for you to work out and so once you've gone through all of those different potential issues as I know you have because you're very thorough if they still want the surgery, then you have to decide whether or not you're going to do it. I, I personally have never been in a distal bice in an arm for distal biceps uh, more than twice. Yes. So God over, bless. Over three hertz. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Yeah. God bless you. And may the force be with you. Yeah. I didn't say it was smart, and I didn't say I was looking forward to it, and I didn't say that if you brought it to me. I wouldn't tell you you're crazy to try it again. What I'm telling you is I couldn't get out of the room. It's almost like I was completely 100% helpless until I agreed to do it. And um, I, I, I'm, full disclosure, very embarrassed about it. But that's where I am. I think that maybe the, you know, a lot of the listeners to our podcast are trainees or fellows or people that are young and practice. And I, I think one of the major lessons that came through is that um, if you have a patient where something goes wrong, you have to stick with them and you have to sit with them and talk with them and say, I'm sorry that this happened to you and we'll do whatever we can to fix it for you. And that um, that, that makes your life in clinic really challenging. It slows you down. It's, it's emotionally challenging to then move on um, to the next patient. Um, so I, I, I'm glad I don't have that on my schedule. That's a, that's a hard one. You picked a hard one to talk about. 
Well, Peter, we're again not talking philosophy, but and again, Mark or others may disagree, but he sits down and sitting across from me, and he comes in a lot. And the first thing I say to him is, let me again apologize. I feel very bad about the fact that you had this complication twice, and I'm sorry. And I am a firm believer that saying you're sorry does not mean that you performed malpractice. And having had my share of bad results and complications over the years, I'm a firm believer that saying you're sorry um, helps them understand that you really care. And from my medical legal work that I've done over the years, the number one thing that gets doctors in trouble is arrogance. So I only bring it up, and these are, again, points that I've learned the hard way, but um, I think these people have to know that you care. And that's my two cents here. Dr. Cohen, this is certainly a, a difficult case. And um, I'm thinking closely about one of my patients and something similar happened. And and um, just wondering, for this patient, I have two questions. For this patient, do you what do you think his biggest complaint is? Is it cosmetic? Is it weakness? Is it endurance? Uh, or just something doesn't feel right and he can't quite describe it, but he knows that. That's question number one. And, and question number two is, as you're starting to plan your menu of options for the re-revision, what, what's, on your, what's on your menu? What are your different options, especially for our young listeners out there? Yeah. The answer to question number one is, I actually believe it's a combination. Every time I come into the room, he's got a um, sleeveless T-shirt on because he wants to show me the asymmetry of his arms. So cosmetic is clearly part of it. I also believe that because I've heard it so much, that during his workouts, he does feel fatigue and he feels a difference when he tries to do biceps curls and all these other machines and things that he works on. He notices a difference. So I think it's a combination in him. Um, in terms of um, strategies, um, Rachel, here's my thought right now. I have no idea. Um, I have no idea. Um, I will, at one point, when I get close to his surgery date, send around, like I often do, to friends to try to see if anybody has any um, opinions. I'll tell you that um, I've, I'm 0 for 2 on transosseous, um, a transosseous tunnel. I'll probably have to change that and use an end of button or something different just to try to have more security. Um, the other thing is, um, I don't think the problem is the graft. I think it must be, and it's not the weave of the graft into the tendon. I probably use 40 um, stitches with multiple pulvertaf weaves approximately. So um, I probably will do something different with the docking of the tendon into the radius. Um, but, um, and I, I'm not 100% sure if the type of allograft is, is, is important. Um, my biggest really concern is at this point, he's been so long, I probably cannot make his asymmetry better. That that muscle probably will not stretch out and look the same, but um, I don't have much much in terms of an answer here. I've been real happy, particularly with uh, revision cases where you're using a graft, uh, using an Achilles tendon allograft, and using uh, a technique that was described by actually one of our, our former fellows, uh, Toby Johnson was one of the co-authors, and the other pe person was Carrie Tanner, and it's, it's called the Spock technique. 
And basically what it does is through an anterior approach, you can um, you, you pass sutures from behind the bicipital tuberosity to in front of it. So through an anterior approach, you can put it in an anatomic position. It is, it's pretty bone preserving. You're using uh, two 2.5 millimeter holes. And through those, I'll pass uh, two number two sutures, heavy uh, non-absorbable sutures that are loop sutures that I um, use to secure the tendon. So you have a very good hold on the tendon, you have a very good uh, hold on bone, and then the Achilles is fanned out, uh, cut into uh, three strips and woven through the muscle. And that, that has been a, a pretty nice construct. I'm, I'm not a big fan of big holes in the tuberosity. And again, that was based on early experience with having people referred in to me after having fractured through those holes. You're experienced enough to put that hole in a central position in the bicipital tuberosity. But in particular for our younger surgeons, if you get a little eccentric with that hole placement and you start to encroach on cortical bone, it's a big stress riser. I don't, you don't want to be in my OR, Mark, because I make a hole you could put your head in. Well, I'm sure it's a big hole, but I also know that, that you put it in a position that that is, is not going to encroach on cortical bone. Well, I think what everybody has to understand is that we have tremendous experience with tendon healing to bone. It doesn't need to be in bone to heal. And so you look at our, you know, our experience with rotator cuff, you look at that with uh, um, sort of around the body, probably the only place where, where uh, tendon is, has to be routinely put into bone and it's more for isometry, I believe, is uh, in ACL surgery. But uh, tendon heals very strongly to the surface of cortical bone. It's interesting you say that, Mark, because I listened to Chris Schmidt, um, and I'm sure you've heard him down the hall. And I started to – I use a two-incision – I'm the only one left in my entire um, university using a two-incision technique. Everybody's gone to the one incision. I've never left a two-incision. But he makes a big deal about making the whole – anterior to the tuberosity so you can have the tuberosity as a fulcrum and get the true biceps function and i did that a couple of times until i realized that i was burring cortical bone and the mush uh the, the softer bone around the tuberosity i was leaving in place and it made me started to make me very uncomfortable and now i've gone back to um going right in the middle of the tuberosity i know i'm sacrificing some of the mechanical lever arm but my my rationale is I'm still putting the tendon back around the corner, not on the front where everybody else is. I know it's at least got some mechanical advantage wrapping around the radius. Dr. Barrett, tell us about a challenging case you have coming up and how you're planning to approach it. Well, uh, so on Thursday, I have a woman who has a, a little bit of a late presentation for an elbow fracture dislocation where I'm anticipating that she's gonna have an unreconstructable head. I'm anticipating that I'm gonna to have to do a good uh, lateral ulnar collateral ligament uh, repair. I don't think uh, her small coronoid fracture, it's a terrible triad variant, is going to be an issue at this point. But she has a, a uh, nickel allergy. So Mark, what, what should I do in that situation? 
It's interesting. Um, you know, that that was popular, even the joint guys, the whole nickel allergy thing. In fact, um, I'm old enough, none of the probably people listening are old enough to remember, but um, we started with um, stainless steel back in when I trained in, in, in the 80s. Everything was stainless steel. And then came along titanium. And one of the titanium, of course, has um, a modulus of elasticity closer to bone, yada, yada, yada. But one of the things that was touted as a benefit of titanium was that it's you get away with a n- nickel allergy that some people have with stainless steel. And many of the advantages of titanium ultimately were found to be um, less important clinically as the world went back to stainless steel. And I remember sitting in an AO meeting in about the year 2000 when they said that the Swiss had bought all of the nickel-free stainless steel in Europe and all the new implants were going to be nickel-free stainless steel um, until it came out that it was going to be too expensive to change everything over to nickel-free stainless steel and everything went back to stainless steel and no one mentioned nickel again. But, um, boy, Mark, I've had that a couple times and I've sent people to um, allergists where you can have them tested. And I have to say that um, more than once I've ignored it. Um, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. I have a partner who's a um, metallurgy specialist. He spent his whole life dealing with this, and I would probably go ask him. But, um, boy, I don't ask people about that much. I know it's probably real. And I I also know that we probably get away with using stainless steel in people who have a nickel allergy um, more commonly than not. But I have no, other than all of the nonsense that I just gave you, I don't have any real expertise in this. So I I looked into some of the different implants and all of the implants uh, that I checked out, um, we don't have pyrocarbon in the States as far as I know. Um, do, do you know of a, 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 an approved pyrocarbon radial head in the in the states? No, but I wouldn't use it anyway. Yeah. Um, and so all the implants that I checked into had an element of nickel. And this woman is um, is very legit and and has a, a pretty pronounced sensitivity that she has been evaluated for before. So it, is there anything that you would consider doing? absent an implant if you wanted a spacer. What about putting it in her and then once you get her elbow stable, taking it out? Yeah, I talked about that. Actually, instead of uh, guess what I'm thinking, I'll just tell you what the the game plan is. So if she has, if I uh, get into the elbow and she has uh, longitudinal instability in addition to some valgus instability. Which she won't. My my plan is to put in an implant and just do what you said, but I I believe the chances of that are, are relatively small. If she has fairly marked valgus instability, I'm also going to use an implant. If it seems like it's more of a soft valgus instability, my plan is to do something that uh, Bernie Mori has talked about, and that is to put an ankyneus. And the ankyneus is not going to be a, a substantial buffer against valgus instability, and it certainly won't uh, control longitudinal instability. 
but as a soft tissue spacer, uh, may get her past this without having an implant because she's fairly adamant about not having an implant placed, even though I definitely need to take out her radial head. I also told her that uh, there was a chance that I would go to the medial side of the elbow, though I don't believe that I'll have to. Uh, Mike Hausman actually uh, published a paper on use of silicone implants with repair of the MCL. And so the silicone itself, as we know, isn't going to hold up well over time. Bernie Moore taught us that uh, those are going to uh, work at best for about six months. But I think the reason that uh, Mike had a good early experience with that was that he uh, managed some of the potential valgus instability by going to the medial side. Well, Mark, the, the, the rubber works if the radial head's not loaded. If the radial head is needed for valgus instability, the, the, um, the rubber will fall apart. What I will tell you is in the N of one, early on in my practice, before I got smart, I had a woman who had a terrible triad, but her radial head was just split in two. I said, oh, my gosh, this one I'm going to be able to repair. And, of course, I got in there, and once I secured the broken piece to the rest of the remaining radial head, everything fell apart. And I had no radial head. It was in my hands. And this is a woman who had a terrible triad, and the teaching, of course, was you need to put a radial head, you need to put a radial But I had no radial head in the room. We didn't have them at the hospital. We still don't. So I went medially, and I put whip stitches in her flexor pronator and some of her MCL that had torn off the humerus, and I advanced that back, and I repaired her lateral side. And if think about it, we can take people's radial heads out all the time if they have intact ligaments. And if you're able to restore her ligaments, if her medial ligament is adequate or you can repair it and you repair her lateral ligament, you probably can get away without having a radial head in this woman as long as you're very careful with her rehab. Because once you get the ligaments to heal, she doesn't need a radial head. I'm, I'm with you. I think that's, that is what I'm hoping to be the outcome. But as you've said, if, if uh, she's got a floppy elbow, either from medial to lateral or longitudinally, uh, then I have to bite the bullet. And at the end of the day, what would be the consequences of her having some reaction? The, one of the implants that I looked at has 0.05% um, nickel in the head and 0.5% in the stem. At worst, I take out the implant, and that should resolve the situation. Yep. And just um, one little um, opinion. I think the Ankeneus helps when you have convergence of the radius on the ulna after the head is out. And I'm not of course telling you what to do i'm just i'm not sure you need the ankeneus yeah and that may be more of a uh, a folly than something that's really going to restore stability the one thing that it might do at least in the short term it might help you tension uh the lateral side the lateral ulnar collateral ligament a little bit well certainly a bunch of fascinating little tips here that I would love to follow up with, such as maybe you don't need the radial head for your pair of both sides. Um, but we're, uh, we're running close on time. So I wanted to thank both of you for 
coming and sharing all of your insights with us. I'm sure our listeners will find this valuable as they think about challenging cases in the elbow. So thank you both so much for taking the time to come with us. This was great. Thank you for inviting us. It was my pleasure. It was really a fun hour to spend some time bouncing some eyes around, ideas around. Well, as Pete mentioned, that's really all the time we have for this podcast. Again, we want to thank both of our guests. Our listeners will certainly benefit from all of the pearls and tips and tricks. One of those pearls in particular, asking for opinions from friends and colleagues around the country. It's just something I really did learn firsthand from Dr. Cohen when I was a junior resident in his clinic. I remember watching him look at those emails, send those emails, and talk to his patients about getting opinions from experts around the country. And I thought at that time as a resident, wow, if Dr. Cohen can do that as a senior surgeon, that that's really incredible. And that's something, as Pete mentioned, he employs in his practice. That's certainly something I do in my practice. And I think we both learned that early on from Dr. Cohen. So um, thank you. And, and Dr. Barrett, thank you. As you mentioned, you do the same. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.